Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me on this very special episode of the podcast. Today, Talk Easy turns five years old. And now I suddenly feel old just saying that. If you're listening right now, you've probably made that possible. Since 2016, we've released over 220 episodes with artists, activists, politicians, and uh, once my mother. The goal being to create a program that looks backwards and forwards, to slow down and process. And for five years, we've done that as an independent show. No institutional backing, no corporate apparatus. Everyone at Talk Easy is here for the space we create each week for the guest and, most importantly, you. That's why this month, to mark the five-year occasion we're launching a Patreon campaign where listeners like you can support the show through monthly or one-time donations. Of course, Talk Easy will always be free. I don't believe in putting a premium on our archives or charging per episode. For the sake of accessibility, our doors will remain open to anyone that wants to listen. But if you can afford to support the labor and love that goes into this show every Sunday... We are asking you to do so at patreon.com slash talk easy. That's patreon.com slash talk easy. I know these are trying times, so if you can't make a financial contribution, that's all right. Simply raising awareness for this campaign or sharing the show with a friend is plenty helpful. We are a listener-supported program, and the best way for new people to find our work is through you. So, I thank you in advance for the love and support, however that takes shape. I appreciate you showing up, for listening, and getting behind what we do here. Now, to celebrate the anniversary and the launch of this campaign, I wanted to revisit a few of my favorite passages from the past five years. Moments and stories and bits of wisdom that have stayed with me. Maybe you'll recognize some of these pieces. To start, let's go to the fall of 2019, where I sat with documentarian Errol Morris. 
He's built a career out of curiosity, and I wanted to get to the heart of that before playing a clip from his film, Gates of Heaven. I hope you enjoy this special episode, and now, here's five years of Talk Easy. If we can go back to you leaving college, wanting to make movies, then being a, you know, a PI, where do you think this sort of inherent curiosity in people comes from for you? I don't know. Maybe everybody is the same, but everybody really isn't the same. There's this idea of truth, pursuit of truth. Did I always have it? I think I did have it in some form or another. I remember, and I sometimes use this as an example, I wrote a book called The Ashtray, and in The Ashtray I do, in fact, use this as an example. I got into a bet with kids who lived in the neighborhood. It's something I learned from my brother, my older brother, six years older than myself, Noel, who was quite brilliant a computer scientist, before people were computer scientists. But you're supposed to ask people, which is further west, Los Angeles or Reno, Nevada? Is there a wrong answer? <laughs> yes, indeed. There is a, a correct answer and an incorrect answer. So now the current thought is, well, Everybody's right. It's just a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Well, no. It's not a different way of thinking. Reno is further west than Los Angeles. So I made this bet for a dollar with this kid. And he said, Los Angeles. I said, no, Reno. So I went and I got my Rand McNally's Atlas of the World and open to the appropriate page. Mm -hmm. And clearly, Reno is further west than Los Angeles. So the kid said to me, well, lines of longitude don't cross the water. I guess they end at the coast. I say, no, they don't. <laughs> That's wrong. The argument went on and on and on. He refused to pay me my dollar. And what was the lesson that I took away from all of this is that you can be right, but unless you're bigger than that person, <laughs> you're not going to get your dollar. The dollar is not going to be forthcoming. But even in that, there's an obsession, a very, very simple but very powerful obsession with truth, that there's a world out there. And in that world, things have happened or they haven't happened. And it's our job to figure out, wherever it's possible, what's true and what's false. These are the kinds of questions that have endlessly fascinated me in the Thin Blue Line, which involved the shooting of a police officer in Dallas. There's a question you have to answer. Uh, car traveling down this lonely road in West Dallas, cold, very cold night in late autumn. The police stop a car traveling without headlights. Officer walks up to the driver's side of the vehicle and is shot multiple times. Okay. Car speeds off into the night. A drifter is arrested, tried, convicted and sentenced to death in the Texas electric chair. I enter this story years after the fact. I start investigating, and it becomes, after a year of investigation, they convicted the wrong man. The chief prosecution witness was the real killer. This is not up for grabs. There was a car on that roadway. There was someone seated in the driver's seat driving that car. That driver pulled a gun out and shot this police officer. 
a fact of the matter, a real world in which things happen or don't happen. And what's my job? My job is to figure it out, to figure out what actually did happen on that roadway. Yeah. What is it in the my makeup that would make me want to answer that kind of question? How the hell do I know? <laughs> All I know is that I felt absolutely compelled to answer it. Mm. Can we watch something for a second? What if I said no? Well, too bad. <laughs> Skippy's been dead quite a while, two or three years. You know. Yeah. I don't want to think about One of my very, yeah, very favorite so scenes like I've ever put on film. There. You know, you miss your pets just like you do any of the family. And I don't know what happened to this last little kitty he was here. All the cats have gone. There's no cats around her, no animals, no nothing. I miss that little black kitten so much. It was wonderful. All of a sudden, boom, no animals around. Somebody in the neighborhood or something is doing away with them. This is a clip from Gates of Heaven with Florence Rasmussen. It's from my first film. It's your first recorded interview on film. Yes. And... It was also at the very, very beginning of my work on Gates of Heaven. Day two. I had no idea. I probably still have no idea what I'm doing. But then I really had no idea what I was doing, except a kind of odd persnickety-ness about what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing. A hatred of standard documentary, which kind of persists to this day. A desire to let people speak without interrupting them. I had a fight with the camera woman and the sound recordist because when I first met Florence, she was sitting in her car with a nurse's aide watching this pet cemetery. This was about two pet cemeteries, a pet cemetery that was going out of business. The pets were to be exhumed, moved in refrigerator trucks to a very successful pet cemetery north of San Francisco, Napa. She was there in the car and set up the camera. And Florence at one point said, here today, gone tomorrow. And the sound recordist interrupted her and said, she said, here today, gone tomorrow, right? And she said, no, wrong. That was the end of both of them. I decided to replace both of them when I started shooting again. And I often thought, what irritated me more? Here today, gone tomorrow, right. The evanescence of everything, the limited duration of human existence, a kind of existential sadness. I did not want to hear her corrected. Was I more annoyed that she had been interrupted? That was plenty annoying. Or was I more annoyed that here today, gone tomorrow, not wrong, right. Very much right. That was the beginning of it. I kept firing people because... This persists, actually. I'm quite amazed. It persists throughout my career. People think they have a better idea of how to do things than I do. Well, wait a second. I'm the director. No? Don't I get certain prerogatives as such? Like the decision of how to make the damn movie? <laughs> yeah, that never ends. There's always a struggle. At least there's a struggle for me... If you want to do things differently, if you want to create something that hasn't been seen before, there are always going to be people telling you you're doing it the wrong way. American Dharma is a great example of this sort of thing. I showed this 
It's called the Neiman Fellows as a fellowship at Harvard. I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I call it the junior college, Harvard. It's about a mile down the street. The Neiman Fellowship offers fellowships to reporters around the country. They can come to Harvard, study whatever they want for a year, two years. So American Dharma was shown to the Neiman Fellows. Maybe this is too much of a backstory. Forgive me. One of the fellows said, now, you know, you know, that's not the correct way to interview Stephen Bannon. No, I don't know. There is no correct way to interview anybody. It's what stands behind the interview, which is at issue. Uh, The desire to find things out, the desire to learn something you don't know, the desire to explore an issue in a way that perhaps it hasn't been explored before. Well, what I see in this, and what I keep coming back to this morning rewatching the movie, is part of her monologue, which Roger Ebert called something that Faulkner wished he could have wrote in his initial review in 78. God, I haven't read it for it's thousands wonderful. of years. It's really great. Um, she says... I've been through so much, I don't know how I'm staying alive. Really, I have for my age. If you're young, it's different, but I've always said I'm never going to grow old. I've always had that. And people that I tell how old I am, they don't believe me. Because people my age as a rule don't get around like I do. You did this interview when you were 29, 30. Yes. It's been 41 years You are 71 now. Yes. Do you see some of yourself in her at this point in your life? I saw a lot of myself in her 40 years ago, and I still do. We're all struggling trying to figure out the world and our place in it. She's one of my perfect existential characters, a person left alone feeling deeply betrayed by one loved one after another, confronting the very real possibility of imminent death. I was incredibly moved by her. I loved her. I still do, and feel deeply grateful that she was willing to talk to me. I feel that in this interview, I call it the shut the fuck up school of interviewing. You let people talk. You don't interrupt them. You encourage them. I did a piece, I don't know if you saw it, in the airmail, which is Graydon Carter's new publication on interviewing, on the nature of interviewing. You're there to encourage people to tell you something. You're not there to create an adversary You're not there to ask adversarial questions, although people like to think that's the purpose of interviewing. I don't know what purpose interviewing has, but I do know that the interviews that I like to do are very, very, very different in character. You want to hear something. You want to create a place where people feel free to talk to you and to express something that they may not have expressed before. That was Errol Morris. He's the director of films like The Thin Blue Line, Gates of Heaven, and American Dharma. Next up is a short story from one of my favorite authors, the one and only Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm still amazed. I have have certain cousins that I look at and I think... What's it like to be satisfied? (laughs) Like, to just be like, here's my high school boyfriend, you know, we got married, here's our kids, here's our house, and I stare at them and look for signs of misery, and I don't see it. Like, they they have really lovely lives, and they're lovely people, and I'm like, what's that like? (laughs) Liz, I'm sure they really appreciate you going to these family gatherings and and you sitting down and thinking, where's the misery? Where is it? Well, actually, 
what I want to say is like, what's it like to not feel like you're on fire? You know, um, like to not feel like you're on fire and the world's on fire and you have to go be in the fire of the world. Um, I marvel at it. And, and I remember I have one cousin who I really love and she has a beautiful life that she's created with her partner that she's been with forever and her kids. And, and, and she said to me, like, if I, if I had one life to live that wasn't mine, I think I would like it to be yours. And, and I was like, well, I've got maybe, I said, what percentage of that of you is that? And she's like, maybe 2%. And I was like, that's cool. Cause I've got like 2% of my life that would want to be. But, so it seems like we're living the life we want. You know, um, there's just a little bit of curiosity of what would it, what would it have been like to take a totally different path? <laughs> But she doesn't really want it, and I don't really want her life. But um, but I do wonder, what would it like be like to just be like, this is fine, you know, this is fine here, this place is fine, this person is fine, this job is fine. Um, that's just not what I'm like. <laughs> if people like you and I could do it, it would be wonderful. But since we can't, it would be agony. Well, I also just think it's what your nature is. And there's a little anecdote that's in Eat, Pray, Love about this guy who I met when I was in India. And he was from a dairy farm in County Cork in Ireland. Um, grew up in a very conservative, very traditional, very rural Irish setting. Um, pretty restricted world. And But he was on fire. You know, he was on fire from the time he could remember. He was He was on fire. He was hungry. He was full of yearning, longing, agitation, emotion, craving, desperation, all of it. And he went out in the world, threw himself, impaled himself on the world and um, had various adventures and misadventures. And then finally in his 30s found his way to this ashram um, where I met him. And he's just, it was so, it's so funny the people you meet in places like that. You know, it's like, here's this guy who's got a face like the map of Ireland. You know, he's just like, he looks like he should be like mucking out sheep and he's got the accent to match. And here he is like on his knees in a, in a, at 4am chanting in Sanskrit, you know, like with the rest of us hungry weirdos trying to find something. And he told me that he went home to see his father, who is a, a man who had like my father had no interest really in leaving the farm mm-hmm. and, um, and, and was perfectly happy having each day look like the day before. And he was trying to explain to his dad about what he had discovered in India. And, and they're sitting there and they're staring at the fire. And he says to his dad, ah, you got to understand, you know, I found this, this path of meditation and prayer and, and it's, it's amazing guy. You know, it, 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 it really stills your mind. <laughs> it's, it quiets your mind. That's what he said. It really quiets your mind. Uh, and his father, without lifting his eyes from the fire, says, I've got a quiet mind, son. <laughs> like, I didn't have to leave my house. Like, I've got a quiet mind. And Sean was his name. Sean said, but I don't, uh, you know, I don't. And 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 I don't either. And, and if you don't, you have to go find whatever you have to find to to satisfy it. Are people actually listening to this now? They aren't listening uh, right now. We're not doing this live, but they will listen once it airs. And of course, they've never heard a podcast, so. I'll come back on your show again, by the way. Are we going to do a part two? Yeah, I'll, I'll do part three, part four. You're great. Okay. Yeah, I do everything in my life now, and you should include this in the thing, is about joy. Coming on the show with you. I have found the, the 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 experience joyous. I know I've talked a lot, but I think that's what you want from me. But you're very good at your job. You're great at your job. You're great at your job. Great. You're almost a throwback. I feel like I'm on a, I'm on a, a, some hip FM channel, and it's 1971. That was Fran Lebowitz and Jeff Garland. Next, I wanted to play this piece from our talk with actor Coleman Domingo. You've probably seen him in Fear of the Walking Dead or Euphoria. At an early age, he left his family and friends in Philadelphia, where he grew up, to go out west. He landed in San Francisco with the hopes of becoming an actor. What he became was himself. Here's a little piece of his story. 
I, I think I seem to start writing things because I'm frustrated with the form of something. Like if I see something like A Boy and a Soul was written because I didn't particularly love solo shows. Mm. And I thought, well, this is the way I think a solo show could work. Right. That I would be interested in. You know, I'd see this show. <laughs> That's a good reason to do something. Yeah. you know, I, mean, I don't you, like anything else. I'll write it. I'll write something I think that. I'm going to try. <laughs> That's why I'm going to start a podcast. Great. Because you know, I hate podcasts. I'm totally kidding. No, no, you can have my microphone. It's exactly. fine. <laughs> you know, but this is a common thread in the, in the little I know about you, which is there are traditional narratives and traditional formats to create something and to tell a story. And um, in particular, I know you have talked about in the past about you coming out mm-hmm. is something that... Uh, Rather, your story varies from the common conception or the preconception people have about people coming out, especially people of color coming Absolutely. out. Absolutely. And I think it's funny. Um, one of my, was it a boy and a soul? It was a boy and a soul. There was a critic in yeah. San Francisco who said she doubted the validity of my story because from what she knows from watching documentaries, right. that it's very hard to come out in the African-American community. And I was like, well, what the, this is the whole reason why I, I wrote here. this. What the fuck? I'm, I was like, wait, isn't that the point of theater and also to add your voice to the chorus? And I thought, who's going to doubt the validity of my own story? You know, so, <laughs> so, and I wrote a real scathing letter to her and then, but I didn't send it because I didn't think. It, why? Because it didn't matter. She was going to feel the way she's going to feel no matter what. She have sent it. I just thought it was fascinating that she thought, and also she was also a white woman. And I thought it was very interesting that the, the story that she would like mm-hmm. my story to be. Right. Instead of me saying that this is um, trying to inspire some others, that it's, you can come out in your family, you can be met with love. You use the, you use the word fascinating, but you mean bullshit, right? Oh yeah, bullshit. Basically. Okay. Yeah. You know, I try to, you know. Do you I need try, me to decode I try to go what's high. Good? I try to go high, you go low for me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that whole sentence until I did. I have to go low. That's such a terrible deal. No, but sometimes you need that balance. You need somebody to go low for you. You, you know what? Be, I'll, I'm see. I'm the white person. That, that, I can that's go That's a low. wingman. That's yeah. a good wingman. I'll take I'll, care of it. Thank you very much. No problem. Really, <laughs> I, I do want to know though. Um, your older brother was like a ladies' man. Oh, he still is. Still is. Yeah. What was the interaction with your family? I know he was very supportive about you coming out. Yeah. But what was it like? What did happen? Um, it, I, 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 it's actually, I wrote about it in a boy and a soul and it really did happen that way. It was like a, a game telephone. Um, I came out, I came out to my mom. Um, uh, no, first I came out to my brother outside of a strip club in Philadelphia because he was trying to take me there to, uh, you know, to get some, you know, laugh oh and, and I was laughing and silly about it. And so I came out to him outside and he said, I love you. I'm, I'm glad you can tell me. And I was sobbing because it meant the world to me. And What a setting. It, yeah, right. It's true. And it was absolutely true. Um, but it makes sense because you, you, you're, well, what I, he wanted of you was being pushed to its extreme at a strip club. That's exactly it. And, and you know what? I, the thing that I pride my, myself and my family on, we, we try to be as authentic with each other as possible. And I knew that I was living in San Francisco and I, I just didn't want there to be an abyss between us, you know what I mean? I think that, you know, the more that I was like, you know, living my best life, they weren't a part of it. And that's just not the nature of our, our, our family. So I knew that by doing that, I wanted to get closer to them. And then I got a call from my sister, who I, my brother promised that he wouldn't tell anybody. And uh, a week later, my sister calls me and she tells me she's mad at me. And I'm like, what? She says, I can't believe you told Rick first. <laughs> she was just mad because I told my brother first and right. not her. And then we laughed about it. She said, I think you should tell mom. I called my mom and I told her uh, I had something to tell her. And she was like, what's wrong? What, you, 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 uh, did you get somebody pregnant? I'm like, no. Are you in jail? No, I'm not in jail. You know, so she, had, she thought it was going to be all these other extreme things. And then I came out to her and she took a nice pause. And she said, okay, I love you. The first thing she wanted to make sure she knew was that she, uh, she had to think about it, but she loved me. Um, but, you know, she, she said, but, you know, I'll, I'll actually do it. But, you know, I can't tell your stepfather this. I said, okay, okay, mom. So I hung up. 20 minutes later, the phone rings and my mother says, 
Jay, they call me Jay, that's my nickname. Jay, well, I told your stepfather about what we talked about. I said, what? No, what? She said, oh, I said, what did he say? He said, hold on. He gets on the phone. Jay, I'm like, uh, yeah, 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 pop. Uh, well, you know what me and your mom talked about? I said, yeah. Well, uh, he's from the South. That's why I was doing this to you. Well, uh, I just want you to know, uh, well, you, you, you know, you're a good boy. And um, he beat around the bush a bit. And then he finally said, um, I love you. There's nothing you can tell me that will make me stop loving you. And um, I knew that they had that, that much love for me. And uh, like about a month later, my mother came out to San Francisco to visit me because she wanted to see, almost like see who I was and see if I was still the same boy that she knew. And I was, of course. She just, and I think it, I think there are people in our families that are supposed to open us up and challenge the norms of what we think. And I know she came out there and we walked around the Castro and nothing was unusual to her. She was like, oh, I thought I had one idea about what this is, but now you're showing me so much more. I know that my son is my son. I know that my, her world just expanded. And then it expanded so much, she actually went, we, <laughs> we walked into um, a bar. She said, do you want a drink? I'm like, oh, uh, yeah. She said, come on, I want to take my son for a drink. And we go into some bar. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to go into this bar. We go into this bar and I'm like, okay, well, you know, just some, some gay bar in the Castro. I'm like, oh my God, I hope nobody's doing anything. What's happening? I was like, so, I was so conservative. I was like, oh, what's going on? Mom was like, is there a bathroom? Said, Hold on, let me go use the bathroom and see how it's free, see if it's clean and everything. So I did, came back. I come back, she's, bought a couple cocktails talking to people and she was just but she wanted to she wanted to get to know me even more so and know my world and it and it kept us close um up until both my mom and my stepfather both passed away in 2006 like six months apart from each other they were mm. very much in love and um yeah but i know that i had people who are really truly um people who really loved me and well like i say again they were simple people and at the end of the day just wanted to know that that i was a good person and I was making a um, good impression on the world, you know, be a successful human being in the world. And it doesn't mean like success, like the way we think of success. I think it's just by like having a job, making a difference, having a sense of who you are spiritually. Um, <laughs> you know, that's it. Basic. That was a good story. Thank you. <laughs> it got uh, emotional there. Yeah, it does. It, it does. Because it's like. And I forget, because these are, these are things that, I don't know if you bury them, but it's like, like no one asks me to talk about that on the daily, so I have no, you know, so I'm like, suddenly it, it hits a, um, a button, a string or something that you realize is probably always a little bit right here, but you don't really deal with that. But you ask something that's so personal, I'm like, oh my God, okay, wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Welcome, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I should have did more research on you. You get people to cry. Oh, no. <laughs> I would have said, no, thank you. I'm not doing that show. <laughs> I could imagine. I'm like, I'm not in tune with my feelings. No, thank you. <laughs> That's a personal choice you have to make. <laughs> what are you going to do? Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do I see myself in five years? Yeah. I'll answer that if you answer that. Dead. No. Really? You know, uh, Elliot Smith. Okay, yeah. Did you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so in five years, what are you doing in five years? It's your part of the bargain. You got to hold up. Um, I think I'll still be interviewing you. I think it would be <laughs> <laughs> it's one. It's one long interview. That last part was from an early, early episode with comedian Eric Andre, in case that wasn't clear. In thinking about his question to me, the future is a frequent topic of conversation on this show. But to even imagine the future, we have to square away our past, not only where we come from, but who we come from. So next up are three people trying to make work that honors where they come from. First, here is comedian Hassan Minhaj explaining the cultural significance of speaking truth to power in his comedy. I come from a culture and a community and I'm a child of immigrants where there's just certain things you do not really say. 
And if you even look at like modern political discourse in say India, where my family's from, political discourse, conversations about religion, these things are very heated arguments where sometimes even racial and ethnic and religious violence break out over them, right? So watching Chris Rock or watching Carlin, watching Jon Stewart criticize the war in Iraq in front of people, to me was just so revolutionary and brave. And I thought about why that is. And I realized what attracted me to the, the art form of comedy was this idea that of, about power and control. And I don't mean power in the sense of, I want power over other people. That's the common thing of, I'm going to be in the room where it happens. I'm going to pull the levers and be with people in show business because that will make me feel better. I will wield power over others. It's not that. It's actually power to control my destiny. I can say and do what I want. And when I have this microphone, and if I'm good enough at comedy, I can create my own little world where I can tell jokes and I can tell stories and I can speak from my heart. And I don't have to be afraid about somebody else having power or control over me. Because when I first started doing comedy, I was working at Safeway bagging groceries and my manager had control over me. Then I got fired. Then I worked at Office Max and I had to sell printers and I got fired. And the few times that I felt liberated, I felt power and control over agency. I felt agency over my life was when I was on stage. And I still have that. I still feel that way. Every time, even there's some episodes that we've done on the show that feel like third rail issues or I feel nervous to do, I remind myself the reason why I even got into this was to have the ability to say that stuff. And I know that word power and control, they're, they're very negative, but I don't mean it like that. I don't want to have control over you. I don't want you to have control over me. You know what I mean? I don't want you to tell me that I have to say, welcome to Office Max. How can I help you take it to the max? I don't want to do that anymore, Brian. <laughs> like my manager used to make me say that. I don't want you to have control over me anymore. I want to be able to say whatever I want to say. And I don't mean that in a, again, comedy now has become this, this language of the provocateur. I'm not in that business. I, I, I've never kind of been that guy of like, what are the words I can't say? I want to say that just to say that. I want to connect and I want to feel understood. And that has nothing to do with being a provocateur or a rabble rouser. I just want to connect with people, you know, and make, and make people feel less alone. I do think I come from a line of women that rise like the phoenix. This is Lena Waithe. No matter what the scenario is. You know, my grandmother, you know, who is a person, particularly speaking about my mother's mom, who literally <laughs> left the South because she's from Arkansas and was not, it was not a fun time to be a black girl in the South at her, when the time she was a teenager. She's like, she literally got married to get the fuck out of the South. Like mm -hmm. when she was too young, her, her, my, my great grandmother had to sign her marriage like license to approve, it, to approve the marriage because she was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here and I'm going to Chicago. <laughs> and, um, and that's where she went and she stayed and she traveled and she was like this like fly person that even though she had kids, she was like, I'm not about to stay in this house. She's like, y'all know how to iron, y'all know how to cook, figure it out, I'll be back, you know? And so you know, God would have it that I would be raised in the house with my grandmother, which is the same house my mother was raised in, uh, and be raised in that village of people. Also, too, I, I was raised in a neighborhood where a black, you know, the the house across the street that I, from us had a little a stick left by a burning cross because the family across the street was the first black family to move to that neighborhood. And so, but when I was there, it was an all black neighborhood. So it's like, then those were the people, and those are my neighbors, the Watsons. I won't forget them, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's the community I grew up in. So I just kind of, I think it's more so, it's more stemmed from, you know, from the people I was around and from from whence I came, you know? And I think there's also a thing, I'm very much connected to my history. You know, I haven't done the whole ancestry.com thing. I don't know what part of Africa my, my, my ancestors were kidnapped from. But I'm. It, it's not lost on me that, I am a descendant 
of people that survived the Middle Passage. It's like the shit that I go through or deal with or that people throw at me, it ain't as bad as that. It's not as bad as slavery. <laughs> it's not as bad as Jim Crow. Not as bad as the Civil Rights Movement. So that's where I come from. That's the bloodline that I'm from. How can I not walk tall? I have to, just as a, as a salute to them. I feel like they deserve at least that. That if they have to go through all that, that like, I shouldn't, when I walk, I shouldn't bow. I like to distinguish between country and government. This is Dolores Huerta, trailblazing labor leader, civil rights activist, and community organizer. I like to remind people that when the founding fathers of our government came to America, there were people here, our Native Americans, and they had their own civilizations. And so we have to kind of remind people that the United States was a brown country when people from Europe came here. Whether it was the Spaniards or the English or the French, there was a country here of brown people. So our founders were Caucasians. So they were the founders of our government, not our country. Okay, But we know that those founders that came here from Europe, that they founded the United States of America by rebellion. They stood up against the English and they stood up against the French and everybody else, you know. So we, we have a government that was, was formed by rebellion. And so maybe when we see ourselves as Americans, as citizens of the United States of America, that we have to realize that that is part of our heritage. Your friend and poet from Delano, his name's Luis Valdez, and he once wrote that revolution starts with self-love. If you're a member of an oppressed people, you have to develop self-respect. And that starts by developing some affection for who you are. You love your family and you say, okay, but why does the world regard them as inferior? Why does the world regard them as ugly when, in my eyes, they're quite beautiful? That's so important because the the type of an education that I'm talking about also inspires uh, children of color when they know about their history. Because if you don't know about your history, then it's very hard for you to have an identification. And the only thing that you hear are the kind of slurs and the attacks and the racial remarks that are made against you and your people. But when you know your own history, you can have that dignity that you deserve. Uh, and we should have. Every person should be uh, have a sense of dignity about who they are. And so, again, if people have that dignity, then no matter what they tell them, they, they can actually fight back and realize, hey, it's not me. There's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with the person that's attacking me and that's calling me names at the, and making this, these remarks against my ethnic group. It's not me. It's them. They're the ones that are ignorant. They're the ones that are wrong. And it's not me. They can stand up and defend themselves. So that, that historical aspect of everyone is very important. My grandfather came from Mexico and Durango in the late 40s and early 50s. And he worked in the farms and fields of Bakersfield and, and then Fresno. And I didn't share this with you before we started recording, but I wanted to say it that I know in my heart I wouldn't have the great luxury of doing the work I do without his sacrifice and I must say yours. So I thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. And by, by the way, my great-grandfather came from Durango also. <laughs> <laughs> so we may come from the same tribe in Durango. Who knows? Thank you very much. Si se puede. It's so wonderful to be able to support you, things of value, to send money to organizations that you just know are doing great work is, is so wonderful. I mean, it, and people should understand that they can send $5. I mean, if everybody just who felt, oh, I really couldn't send but a couple of bucks, 
And so they don't. People have a real generous thing in our genes that when we hear something worthy or someone who needs something who's really worthy or an organization that does great works that needs help, I think probably millions of people think, I wish I had more to give. A dollar is plenty to give. If everybody who had the impulse did that, that'd be so great. So it's a pleasure to support you. I love your work. Uh, the conversations that you have evoke wonderful truths from the people that we're interested in. And uh, you have an uncanny way with people. You have an uncanny way with saying something that is exactly right for the moment, which I kind of wonder what the hell you're up to. Uh, it's, it's just great. It's just great. You have a gift. You have a gift. You should be supported. That was from one of the very best actors we have today, the inimitable Holland Taylor. If you'd like to support our show, you can do so at patreon.com slash talk easy. We'll also include a link in our show notes and in the description of this episode. It's true what Holland said. Any amount helps. Any amount means the world to us here at the show. Our last passage comes from actor Alan Alda. This was back in July of 2018. He was 82 at the time. And boy, this episode, um, it's a really special one to me. And, well, it kind of told me that, that we needed to keep doing this. It was a clarifying moment sitting with Alan. I'm not sure I knew this when it happened, but I can hear it now listening back to the tape. Maybe you'll hear it too. It starts with a discovery, which is about all you can hope for in doing this work. Here's Alan. I just figured this out a while back. I found out a few years ago that I have face blindness. The technical term is prosopagnosia. There's a little uh, fluke in your brain, and you have trouble recognizing faces. So you and I might have dinner and have a really good conversation for three hours. Mm. And the next day, I, I wouldn't recognize you. Ah. I, I, twice, I didn't recognize my own daughter. So I think if you walk into a room and you know some of the people are going to be people you've seen before and expect you to know who they are, and some will be pure strangers, but they all look like strangers. That can make you anxious. And I have a feeling I've been anxious all my life and didn't know that I had face blindness until a little while. I didn't know it existed. Most people don't know it exists. So I say, I'm, if I say oh, they say, we met, we met before we had dinner together or we worked together on that committee. I say, I'm really sorry. I have face blindness. They say, oh, yeah, I do too. <laughs> And they don't. They think it's some kind of excuse. It's, I got face blindness. I got the fusiform gyrus, or whatever it's called, is screwed up in my head. Mm. That is. Um, I'm sorry. This is an unusual interview. I usually don't give my entire medical history. Well, you know, that's actually one of the things we require of people on the show is that they <laughs> deliver that to us. <laughs> I hope I'll be able to get my driver's license after this. You will, and your passport. Yeah. I, 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 you know, my, my natural gut response to that is I feel bad. I don't, not that I, I don't, I'm not, oh, I'm not, try, I'm not trying to like pity well, you. Which part do you feel bad about? I feel bad that that is um, part of your moment-to-moment, day-to-day interactions with, with other human beings. Well, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you said that because I wouldn't want to leave you or anybody else with that feeling because you should know that part of my confidence about life is that anything like that that happens to me becomes, to me, a chance to solve a puzzle, to figure my way out of a maze. And I enjoy that. It's fun. Once in a while, it gets frustrating, but I cope with it. And having a problem to solve is—it's like uh, like when you write something. Every everything you write has a writing problem, and you don't throw the pen down to say, "Oh, I have no—I have no inspiration today." You solve the problem. It's fun. I aim toward having fun, 
We're only here for a short time. People think it's a long time. It's not very long. And no matter how long you last, the oldest person we know of is 122, was 122. Mm. And I just read an article, or actually just a headline, I don't know what the gist of it is, that they're, they're, they have found some indication that 122 is not the limit. And I know, uh, I, I was told on one of the shows we did by about a dozen people who uh, were experts in longevity that with all kinds of changes that are going to be taking place, n- artificial organs, better nutrition, uh, gene therapy, computer replacements for parts mm. that will r- routinely live to 200 or 250. Even when we do, that's not a long time because it's never long enough. The idea that it, you're going to be extinguished when you finally realize that that is the most factual part of it's the most factual fact about life then you you think well that wasn't very long <laughs> you know <laughs> it seems like it's going to last forever when you're when you're a kid but then you start to realize it's not, it's it's shorter so if it's not going to last that long i think it would be a good idea to feel good about things as much as you can why spend that time in misery or anxiety so if there's a puzzle to solve have fun solving it at your age, I don't know, do you feel okay with the end? Oh, yeah. I, well, I, I don't want it to happen, but I don't, I don't mind it. Things changed radically for me when I almost died in Chile 15 years ago. 2003. Yeah, I was within two years of, uh, I'm sorry, I was within two hours of dying. And I had an emergency operation. And I woke up alive and it was a really good feeling. But at the same time, I thought, when they put the mask on me and gave me the anesthetic, that could have been it. I could have, been, I could have never have awakened from that. So I had like a, a rehearsal of dying, and I realized I didn't have a moment of thinking, oh, God, what's going to happen? You know, is, is there a heaven? None, none of that came to mind. The only thing that came to mind was I want to write a note to my wife to say goodbye. Mm. Tell her I love her. So the producer of the show wrote down what I said, and then he lost a note. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> You're kidding. You're, you're kidding. Yeah. I would, have, I would have faced utter disappearance. Did that really happen? <laughs> yes. So uh, I didn't worry about dying while I thought I might be dying. And I woke up not worried about dying, but really glad to be alive. So it's possible to have both of those thoughts at once. <sighs> I do everything I can to stay alive and healthy. Mm. But I'm, I, I think I'll be extinguished at one point, and that'll be that. That's the way it works. The real pain is for the people who are left that's a sad thing. Do you feel satisfied with what you've done in your life? Uh, satisfied is a funny word uh, for what I feel. Some, uh, some of the things I've done, I came pretty close to doing the best I could do. Some, I made a mistake trying to do them and made a mistake in the way I did them. So some things I'm happy about, some things not in terms of artistic things I've done. But What are you talking about? I, I, I just know that there are, there are movies and plays that I've done that I, I, I didn't do a good job in. So I can't say I'm satisfied with it, except I'm satisfied in that once I do something, whether it's good or bad, I let it go. So I'm content satisfied means i'm pleased with myself but i'm content because i'm i'm always trying to do a better job next time that's where i put my thinking Mm. i really don't look back on the past much 
I'm, I'm polite when people want to talk about MASH, but if I could have my way, I wouldn't talk about it at all. <laughs> Alan, can I, can I ask you something that is purely out of genuine curiosity? Yeah. I, I, I don't know you. I mean, you don't know me. We're ostensibly two strangers on the telephone for the last hour <laughs> doing our best to amuse one another. Is, are you going to ask me out? Yeah, actually, could I have your phone number? I'll, I'll write you for a date sometime. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. What's the, we're strangers, yes. And my genuine question is uh, in this hour, question for question, answer for answer, I've been struck by how goddamn positive you are. So what are you curious about? I'm curious how, how, how does, how do, how do you get to that place in your life? I don't know. I, I have no idea. I, I am pretty positive. It doesn't mean I don't get low and I have been depressed uh, at times, anxious. So those things aren't very positive. But maybe because I know if I'm not positive and work really hard to stay on the on top of things, I'll be under them. Mm. So I have a... You know, I got through those nine years not working as an actor just with blind survival. I just was going to survive. I once was, when I was 12, I was with my parents at a hotel in La Jolla, California, and they were asleep, and I went down to the beach to swim. It was a little cove, and there was nobody there but me. And I didn't know there was an, I didn't know what an undertow was or a riptide or whatever it was I got caught in. And the ocean pulled me out from the shore, and then I was underwater the whole time. Then it would... A wave would pick me up and slam me on the shore. And I thought it was fun. And then it would pull me out again and slam me on the shore. And then I thought, well, okay, this has been fun, but now I'm getting tired. I'm going to get out now. And I couldn't. Every time I tried to get out, the water would pull me back. The ocean would pull me back and slam me hard on the shore. And then I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to die here. This is going to drown me. And I started digging my fingers into the sand and pulling myself with my fingers up the beach. It took several minutes before the ocean couldn't pull me back in again. Maybe I got something out of that experience. Or maybe I had something about me that enabled me to survive that experience and all the ones that come along since then. But... That's how I approach it now. I just dig my fingers in and pull myself out of it. Mm. So I hope I hope that keeps working. I have a, a feeling that it will. That would be nice, but you never know what's coming. That's that's I I, I came up with a a way to say that. You, I think you can't fight uncertainty. You uncertainty is going to be your your meal at every meal time and in between unwanted snacks of uncertainty you never know what's going to happen but all you can do is surf uncertainty and if surfing it can be you know the the fun of surfing the the danger the pleasure of making it without cracking your head open you might as well make it a good game because it's going to happen that's what I think. That's how mostly I get through. Well, that, that's about as much as we can do. Um, Alan Alda, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. So long.
that was a great Alan Alda. Before we go, I wanted to share a brief story of our own. Five years ago, I sat in a windowless office in San Francisco. It sat atop a weed dispensary, had wood floors and high ceilings. These were not ideal conditions for a podcast. On the pilot of this show, I opened with a quote by the late Roger Ebert. Roger passed away eight years ago to the day, on April 4th, 2013. The cyclical nature of all this is not lost on me. I present him now as I presented him then. He wrote, Kindness covers all my political beliefs. No need to spell them out. I believe that if, at the end of it all, according to our abilities, we have done something to make others a little happier, and something to make ourselves a little happier, that is about the best we can do. To make others less happy is a crime. To make ourselves unhappy is where all crime starts. We must try to contribute joy to the world that is true no matter what our problems, our health, our circumstances. We must try. I didn't always know this, and I'm happy I lived long enough to find it out. That was our mission statement for the first five years of this program. Bless you, Roger. May they continue to guide us for the next five. You don't make a show like ours for as long as I have without love. Love from listeners writing in. Love from family calling after hearing an episode they like just to say, I listened this week. It was actually pretty good. They like to throw in the actually. Love from friends who field in my calls after some of these tapings, just so I could tell them, oh, I think it went pretty well. You gotta listen to this one. There are too many people to thank for making this show possible over the years. But you know who you are, and I am forever indebted to you. I do want to give a special thanks to Harrison Cameron, Clea Benson, David Cameron, Caitlin Dryden, Caroline Reebok, Andre Lynn, and Joshua Siegel, all of whom made today's special episode possible. If you'd like to support the work we do here, you can visit www.patreon.com slash talkeasy. That's patreon.com slash talkeasy. Our executive producer is Janik Bravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shanoi. Associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Our editor for today's episode is Joshua Siegel. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Kevin Kaur. Music by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Caitlin Dryden, Claire Hardwick, Jilly Harold, Patrice Lee, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrazak, Orion Huang, Ian Jones, Isabel Primavera, and Ethan Seneca. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Thank you for making this show possible. Your support means the world to me. I know that's a cliche, but goddamn if it isn't true. We'll be back next Sunday every Sunday with another episode to close us out a song that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about this show here's to five more years of people needing people I'll see you next week people people who need people
inside acting more like children than children The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.